Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your wonderful words that we have, that we can know your will for us in our life, your words that are life-giving and encouraging, and we have gathered here this morning to hear them, Lord. So we pray that you would open our eyes to behold the wonderful truth about Christ, who is the centerpiece of Scripture. May you incline our heart to your testimonies. And Lord, may we just be nourished in our faith from these words of life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, it's a joy to be here this morning once again to be here together to open God's Word, to study it, to be transformed by these words of life. Every time I, I open the Word or I think about preaching, I think about one of the apostles, Peter, Jesus asking Peter uh, or telling Peter, where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Right? Everything else in our life is is uh, almost to a certain degree irrelevant aside from God's word. Where are we going to go? What's the purpose of life aside from the words of Christ? I want to start off with an illustration this morning of a Broadway musical that Anna and I were gifted tickets to. This was a few years back, and the Broadway musical was Hamilton. Now, if you know anything about the musical, it's full of life. There's a lot of music. There's a, a modern mix uh, of classical music plus some poetry. And Alexander Hamilton was a founding father of the United States, and he was determined to make his mark on this new nation. Well, this was an unlikely story, but he was hungry and ambitious, and he said, I want to build something that is going to outlive me. And he did. As an American revolutionary, influential interpreter, a promoter of the U.S. Constitution, he also founded the Federalist Party, he founded the nation's financial system, the United States Coast Guard, and the New York Post newspaper. Much more in his lifetime that he accomplished than probably I ever will. <laughs> what a list. Now, although Alexander was so ambitious, he wanted to build something that was going to outlive him, his wife was a little bit different. <laughs> she didn't understand this, all these purposes, and she just says, just stay alive, that would be enough. And in our life, I believe we find ourselves in one of these two categories. On occasion, we are ambitious in our life. We want to do great things for the Lord. And there are seasons in our life where we just say, let's just stay alive. That's going to be enough for us. This is a natural tension. But like Alexander, deep down in our hearts, we all want to make an impact on earth. You see, this is how God created us. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 3, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. To live, to be productive, to make an impact was designed by God himself. And uh, one of the modern authors, Jen Wilkins, writes, God has given time-bound humans a longing for timelessness. And this is how we know that we weren't just created to stay alive and get through life. Something in our God-designed DNA tells us we were made for something more. It preaches to us that we were made for something greater, that we want our life to count. So the question becomes, or the question that I think of next is, what is going to make our life count? What makes our life purposeful? In, the cha in chapter 20, we did not read it this morning, but if you look with me in verse 24, I believe Paul gives us an answer here. 
He says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul is putting the spotlight on Jesus. He says, my life is to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. His life matters only in relation to the gospel. This is what made Paul wake up every single morning, the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, friends, if we want to make our lives count, if we want to build something that outlives us, we must not focus so much on career, on the American dream, on leaving a legacy here on earth. We must focus more on Christ's legacy. We must focus more on the gospel and what he is doing. Focus on building his kingdom, putting the spotlight on Jesus in our life. And what encourages me is that God has already begin, begun to do that. We read in the gospel of John, Jesus says that the spirit will glorify him for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Each of us who are sealed with the Holy Spirit, naturally the Holy Spirit puts the spotlight on Christ. That is his whole ministry. And so we see the singular focus in our passage this morning. Paul is continuing to fulfill the Great Commission. Christ is raised from the dead. He's ascended as victor over all principalities and powers on earth. And now he's commissioned Paul to spread the good news. He told Paul, you are my chosen instrument to declare the gospel to the Gentiles. But as we've been studying the last two chapters, we've noticed that this work is done because of the power of God. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. You remember a few weeks back what was going on. People were taking Paul's handkerchief and they were running around and anyone who was touching it was healed. All mirroring what Christ's Ministry was as well. At times, people touched his garment and were healed. But our passage takes a step further as we come to a young man named Lucky or Eutychus. Paul raises him from the dead just like Christ raised Lazarus from the dead and many others. But in all of this, Paul's attitude is not to us, but to your name be the glory. So what is Dr. Luke trying to point out for us with this? You see, in this last section of Acts, we see that Paul has his face set toward Jerusalem. We read that in verse 16 where it says, Paul decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem. We also know that in consequent chapters, he's going to be arrested and then he's going to make his voyage to Rome. This is a mirror pattern of Luke describing Christ's journey to Jerusalem to die in the first book of Luke's account. Jesus set his face like a flint to do the Father's will, so Paul is determined, as we read in verse 24, to finish his course with joy no matter what the cost might be. And so I want to call you this morning to focus on the fruit, the glory of Christ spreading through the ministry of Paul. In our passage here, we have three sections. The first six verses are moving rather quickly. Paul is moving through different cities, and he's doing many things. The story moves rather quickly over a three-month time. And then in our last section of 13 to 16, Paul is moving from Troas to Asos to Middle and Chios, Samos, Miletus, where he meets the elders from Ephesus. And he is doing this because he is not going to come back 
any longer to Ephesus, and he's desiring to go to Jerusalem because of the feasts. And so the glory of Christ is continuing to spread through the ministry, through the hands of Paul. And our passage slows down in verses 7 to 12. For one night in an upper room during springtime, where a young man named Lucky falls from a window and then he's raised to life by God through Paul. And so the title of the sermon is Putting the Spotlight on Jesus. I thought, what else could we have named this sermon? It's similar to missional living or the Great Commission. In other words, it's disciple-making or what Paul would later say to the Ephesians, that your life is created for good works, that you should walk in them. This is the idea of putting the spotlight on Christ. It's living for his glory and his purposes on this earth. And so first we're going to look at Paul's ministry in Macedonia and Achaia. Paul's ministry in Macedonia and Achaia. And this is a, the beginning of his farewell journey. We see in these first six verses a few things. First, Paul encourages and strengthens the disciples. And second, he's going to take a collection for needy believers in Jerusalem. So Paul is leaving this location that he's been ministering at. But before he's going to go to Rome, he's first going to traverse and, and go back to all of these cities and churches that he has begun or helped to begin. First, Paul encourages and strengthens. Now, as I was looking at verse 20, look with me in the verse 1, chapter 20. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. The riot is done. It has ceased. Paul, to a certain degree, and the disciples are acquitted. But Paul is not even moved by this. It did not bother him a single bit. He was a man on a mission, and so he continues to do the ministry. In the face of opposition, he continues to do what Christ has called him to do. You see, this is where Paul has a deeper level conviction about what life is truly about. In 1 Corinthians, he writes, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And this strong conviction is driving everything that Paul is doing in his life. He also writes that Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. This is the purpose of his life. This is why God has called him. And so no matter what happens to him, the glory of Christ is still greater. Later in Corinthians, he writes, For the sake of Christ, I'm content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, and riots. <laughs> For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, he had a singular focus because Christ was the great treasure of his life. And Christ sustains him. Christ's grace is sufficient in his weakness. Paul didn't need to take a break after the riot. Paul didn't need to go on vacation after the riot. Paul presses on in ministry. And so Paul's getting ready for another journey, but he wants to take one more visit to the churches that he helped found. Because as much as Paul is a missionary and an apostle, he is a shepherd. The care of the churches was his greatest joy as well as his heaviest burden. We read in verses 1 and 2, it says, After encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions, he had given them much encouragement, and he came 
to Greece. As I was reading these verses, I asked myself the question, what is Paul encouraging them with? How is Paul encouraging the church before he's going to head out to Rome? I mean, head out to Jerusalem. Friends, what encourages us and what encouraged the church at Ephesus, Macedonia, and Greece is the glory of Christ. This is what Paul's epistles are often about. Galatians, it's Christ alone, not Christ plus anything. In Colossians, he is the preeminent one. So I could imagine Paul coming to these cities and he is reminding them that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, that by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, reminding the believers that you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Encouraging the saints to press on and beholding and seeing the glory of Christ. So Paul spends three, three months in Greece. And you would think, Lord, or he would think, Lord, could I get a break? Can I rest for a little while? And we read in verse 3, there he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So we see again there was a plot to kill him, a plot to put him out. And so he goes back to Macedonia. Now, in these verses, there's something that's historically happening as we are looking at the, at the, book, of, uh, at the book of Acts. And what is going on here is that during Paul's ministry in Ephesus, there was tension with the Corinthian church. If you remember, the Corinthian church was a new church. A lot of young believers are bringing in their background into their Christianity, and Paul was calling them to live in light of the gospel. They were supposed to discipline the moral man. In Macedonia is the place where Titus brought the news that the letter that Paul sent to the Corinthians had its effect, that the offender had been disciplined and the church had become reconciled to Paul. And so listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. This is what he's speaking about here in verses 2 and 3. We show up and our bodies have no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. And here it is. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. And he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I still rejoiced more. Although there's a plot to kill Paul, Titus brings him a delayed news. This was news that was supposed to happen already pre, uh, the, um, before the riot at Ephesus. But God knows exactly when to encourage us. Paul didn't receive this news before the riot. He received this news after the riot. In God's providence, all things that happen, happen in the right timing. And so not only does Paul encourage the saints, he is also, secondly, gathering a, connect, a collection for needy believers in Jerusalem. Now, I don't know if you could see the map up here, but the place where Paul begins, if we can, the map was there, if we can bring it back, please. Uh, <laughs> Paul is on your 
uh, bottom right side in Ephesus, and he goes up along the coast to Troas, and then he sails. He gets down to Greece, right? And Greece was there. There was a conflict, um, and then he flees back, and now he's going to go back toward Ephesus. But we will see in verses 13 to 16, he's actually going to go between those islands on the right side where you see Chios and Samos and Troas. So we'll get there in a few verses, but this is what is going on over here. Paul moves from Ephesus, and then he goes all the way up, comes down to Greece, and then he's going to come back down toward Ephesus. So not only is Paul encouraging the saints, he is gathering a collection for needy believers in Jerusalem. If you remember, there is the Jerusalem council that happened in Acts 15. In Acts 15, the Jerusalem council discussed whether Gentiles needed to be circumcised or not. And in Galatians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul writes that only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So in the midst of this huge theological discussion, Paul remembers the poor. And now he's at Ephesus, and he is going around, and he is making a collection for the saints that he's going to be bringing to Jerusalem. And we read in verse 4 a list of men. We have Sopater the Berean. We have of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, Gaius of Derby, Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. So this is what we would call Paul's brink truck. Have you ever seen a brink truck outside of a store? It's the armored truck that carries the, the funds to be able to, you know, for the businesses, taking it and bringing funds. And so these are the representatives of the churches in these different areas that we saw on the map that are traveling with Paul to handle the funds. And so Paul did not complain when his plans had to be changed, but he pivoted. Instead of sailing from Corinth, which would have been on the left side of our map, he goes overland up through Achaia, Macedonia, and then sailing from Philippi to Troas, where the team was going to meet him. Now, in this first section, we see that Luke is reminding us that God is doing his work. He is moving Paul along where he would want him to go. Again, the book of Acts is showing us something very important, gospel growth. Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times or seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is what Jesus was talking about with his disciples on the night before his death. He said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so now I am sending you. The Father sends the Son into this world to save the world. And we are on the same mission, except, of course, we cannot save the world, but we know the one who can save the world, and we know the message of salvation that gives life. As we're looking at Paul moving around in these different cities, spreading the gospel, this reminds us of Christ. In chapter 1 of Mark, Christ is moving along from one city to another, sharing the news of the kingdom. And although he might have wanted to stay where he was, he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. The Father is doing the work of glorifying the Son. 
Paul is focused on the glory of Christ spreading. His message was Christ. His purpose was to glorify Christ. And his ministry was to be the hands and feet of Christ to the believers in Jerusalem. Now, not only did Paul do ministry in Macedonia and Achaia, but Paul also did ministry in Troas. Paul also did ministry in Troas. And here we see the story of the restoration of this young man named Eutychus. As we're looking at the mission of Christ and Paul fulfilling it and being obedient to it, we see certain fruit and what is attached to the Great Commission. In these verses, 7 to 12, we see a number of things. There's a training of men happening. There's an expounding of God's word. There's the power of God in raising lucky. And there is the edification of the saints happening in this verse. And first, we see in our section that Paul is preaching long. Now, this is a very interesting story. I think it kind of is supposed to give us, uh, not necessarily give us a laugh, but it goes to show that God is doing many things, and he uses many methods to display his glory. And I would call this the longest evening service ever. <laughs> Gateway does not have an evening service, but let's say if it did one time and, and Rod just felt like he was so full of the Spirit, he just really had to go into, you know, past 8 o'clock, which would time we would close, and move all the way up to, the mid, to midnight, and then into the wee hours of the morning, this would be the longest evening service ever. And so we read here in verse 7, on the first day of the week when we were gathered, and we is now including Paul and Luke. This is where the we narratives begin in chapter 20. Now, Luke includes himself because Luke is coming with Paul on all of these journeys. And so we were gathered together to break bread. The Jewish day began at 5 p.m., so this would be a Saturday night into Sunday, the first day of the week that would be Sunday. Now, Luke is highlighting a number of things in our passage. If you look with me, I just want you to see them beginning in verse 7. He keeps highlighting this idea that Paul is speaking for so long. In verse 7, Paul talked with them, intending to depart the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. A young man named Eutychus sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep. But Paul talked still longer. Paul, don't you see? There's a young man who fell into a deep sleep. Maybe we should take a five-minute break. <laughs> and then what happens in verse 11, when Paul got up, he'd broken bread and conversed with them a long while <laughs> until daybreak. And then he departed. <laughs> so... Call this an equipping class, a one-night equipping class. One-day conference with Paul. Paul is going to be sharing a lot of things that these believers need to know before he's going to leave them from Troas, go past Ephesus, and go to Jerusalem. Now, who is Eutychus as we look at this young man? He's one who is listening intently. The fact that he is here says much about him. He desires to learn. He could have been at home, I thought to myself, probably would have went home and went to sleep. He could have been hanging out with the boys in the neighborhood. But we see that he was here and he was listening to what Paul was teaching. Now, the name Eutychus means lucky 
or fortunate. And this is where we have, um, what I say, a little bit of humor in this passage, that the boy's name, whose name is Lucky, falls from the window, being unlucky, but then in God's providence, he is raised to life. Now, not only is Luke highlighting the setting of the scene of Paul's prolonged speech, but he is highlighting, I believe here, the centrality of the word. We have one evening to spend together. How am I going to spend that one evening with these disciples before I leave them? Paul desires to speak about the word. The word, I believe, would be about Christ. We see in this scene at Troas a glimpse of the main elements of early Christian worship. It was observed on the first day of the week. It consisted of breaking bread and preaching, 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 teaching until midnight. These are the same group of men that Paul is teaching. We have Sopater, Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius, Timothy, Tychicus, and Trophimus. Now, the question that I asked in the first section, I'm going to ask once more. What is Paul speaking about? What is the content of his speaking for such a long period of time? What is keeping all of these men interested even into the late night and early morning, including a young man named Lucky? I believe that Paul is teaching about Christ. Paul understands that there is no hope for humanity apart from Christ. Man cannot and will not know God. There must be someone who will preach. He is preaching that Christ is the only way. 2 Corinthians 4, for what we proclaim is not ourselves but Christ Jesus as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Paul also says, My speech, my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul knows that Christ is the only hope for humanity's problem. Paul is probably also teaching on the eternal purposes of God in, in Christ. I, I'm, I'm quoting these passages from, from the book of Ephesians and from Corinthians because this is the time that Paul is here in these locations with the believers. But maybe he is describing and speaking to them and how we read what Ephesians 1 says, that he worked, God the Father worked in Christ. He raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul could have been preaching about Christ giving himself. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. And I would believe there's one more element that is even more so connected with the first day of the week. What is the first day of the week reminding us all, including us this morning, as it reminded the believers there, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his triumphant victory over sin and death, that he ascended and now he is reigning at the right hand of the Father. And that today, although we battle the 
presence of sin, the power of sin is broken. We no longer fear death. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Everything hangs on the resurrection. We are justified because of Christ being raised from the dead. So this is what Paul is preaching and teaching on. And this is why we do not get tired when we hear sermons about Christ, his person, and his work in our life. It feeds our faith because we are Christ-centered people. Because Christ is the center of our life. He is the treasure hidden in the field that whom we find. We sell all that we have to be able to have that joy. Now, what an evening it must have been. We had the riot in Ephesus not too long before that, just a few months. The plot to kill him in Greece, just a few days before that. But now they can pause and rest. Now they are listening intently. And the glories of Christ overwhelms them. Once again, not, not a doctrine, not simply doctrines from Scripture, which are important for us and are foundational, but doctrines about Christ. And so they're engaged and in their teaching, and they are so set on listening to Paul that they don't notice there's a young man who wanted to get some air. Now you might ask yourself, why is he sitting in the window? He could have went somewhere else. You see there, as Luke mentioned here, there were many lamps in the upper room in verse 8. What happens when you turn on a lot of lamps in the upper room during springtime? It gets a little bit stuffy. And so here is Eutychus Lucky. He wanted just to get a little bit of fresh air so he can continue listening to what Paul is, is preaching about. And so because of all the torches, Paul talks still longer. He falls asleep, falls from the third story, and he's picked up as dead. Now, third, what we see in this section is preaching by a miracle. So he's preaching long, he's preaching Christ, but here we see preaching by a miracle because there's something that this miracle is going to show the believers at Troas that have gathered there. Now, it seems that what Luke is showing us is that the, the story climaxes and peaks of when Eutychus falls down, but the resolution is extremely quick. Paul went down, bent over him, taking him in the arms, said, do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. In verse 11, as if nothing even happened, <laughs> and when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them and continued talking and preaching. <laughs> okay, let's just raise this young man and let's get back to business. This is very interesting. I think Luke is highlighting for us the importance of the word, the preparation of these disciples before he's going to head out to Jerusalem First, making a pit stop at Miletus, where he's going to talk to the Ephesian elders. The death of the boy doesn't seem to really be a highlight because the camera turns back to Paul eating and breaking bread and teaching longer and then departing. Now, the people coming down are, are alarmed at this boy. and They're really worried about him. And maybe he wasn't supposed to be there. Maybe he was a friend of a friend, but obviously there's worry involved. But God intervenes, and by the hands of Paul, God raises this boy to life. Now, this story, on the first day of the week, on Resurrection Sunday, has a deeper meaning. It is a picture of the resurrection. 
It belongs to the category of resurrection miracles, such as Jesus raising the widow's son or Jairus' daughter, Lazarus. But this story has an even closer, more striking connection with the raising of the boys by Elijah and Elisha. Just like they threw their bodies over the boys here, Paul threw himself over the boy's body, and that he comes to life. Now, in New Testament, miracles of raising from the dead present a symbolism of the resurrection. They present a symbolism of the resurrection. And there are even more stronger connections with the resurrection in our passage here. It was Easter time. In verse 6, the Passover had just ended. It was the first day of the week, the day of Jesus' resurrection. And so the restoration of Eutychus' life was a vivid reminder to all the Christians at Troas and all of these men in the upper room that Christ is alive, that Christ is victorious, that Christ is doing his work. Although Paul is going through this hardship, although Paul is going to leave them, they have access to the one who has all power in heaven and on earth. Now, in light of the story, how should we think, speak, and act in our own life? I think first, what should happen, we should see that the emphasis of the word here should be the reason why we also emphasize the word in our life. We should study, we should grow in the word. Colossians 3, let the word of Christ, the word about Christ dwell in your richly. The word about Christ, the gospel, the resurrection, the freedom from sin and death. 1 Timothy 4, we read to practice these things, immerse ourselves in the teaching so that all may see our progress. Keep a close watch on ourselves and on our teaching. In light of these two stories, we, we are seeing that God is revealing to us that he is trustworthy, that we can trust him. That although there is a riot, although there is a plot to kill him, here comes a letter of encouragement when Paul's heart is heavy for the saints that they are in sin. There was repentance. We should value his words. We see that God is all-powerful. He's not passive about a boy who is dying. And that he's continuing to build his kingdom through men who are trained up. In this upper room, we see that Paul is putting the spotlight on Jesus. The glory of Christ is spreading through the ministry of Paul. So we have ministry in Macedonia and Achaia. We see this ministry in Troas. And lastly, we are taken on this voyage to Miletus. Voyage to Miletus. <clears throat> this is going to be a farewell message that Paul speaks to the Ephesian elders, which we're going to hear about next week. But we first had <clears throat> we first had a farewell journey, as well as a farewell meal, and now a farewell message, which we're going to hear next week. But in these verses. We see that Paul's journey continues after he took a pit stop at Troas. Paul's journey continues with the delegation taking these finances to the needy saints in Jerusalem. 
And there's a lot of detail in these verses. Why couldn't Luke have just written and said, from there Paul sailed from Troas to Miletus. They had a meeting with the Ephesian elders and he went on his way to Jerusalem. This would have taken about five days of sailing time and each port is given representation of a day's journey. Now, if we're looking at our map here, if you can see it, initially uh, you see Troas on the top and Asos is right below it. So Paul goes by land, they go by sea, he meets with them up, they go to Mytilene on that island, and then they go down to Chios, which is that other island, they pass down there. And if you would notice on the right side where they, we have the yellow line, <laughs> to the right you see it's Ephesus. So Paul does not stop in Ephesus, he doesn't stop there for a reason. Um, and he then meets them down in Miletus, down, down there on the south. So, <clears throat> Asos uh, was a chief city in the island of Lesbos. The next day, he goes offshore to the island of Chios, which was famed as the birthplace of the poet Homer. The following day, they pass by the island of Samos, the birthplace of the founder of, the math of mathematics, Pythagoras. And on the final day, they sail to Miletus, a major Asian city in Paul's day. Now, verse 16, verse 16 is fairly interesting. In verse 16, it says, For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. Why? For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem. Now, if you read this uh, at first glance, you might say, okay, he's going to stop down there at Miletus, and he's going to be meeting with the Ephesian elders. <clears throat> but he doesn't want to stop in Ephesus. Well, when we're looking geographically, it's about a five days journey to walk from Ephesus to Miletus. So the question is, how is Paul saving time if it's a five days journey for him to have to first send a messenger to the Ephesian elders to call, because he's called them down, and then they come back down to Miletus. It's about 10 days, about 30 miles might lead us from Ephesus. So saving time probably wasn't Paul's primary factor in avoiding e Ephesus. Maybe it wasn't safe for him. Maybe it was tied to a ship's schedule. Or maybe he was already there for three years. He, he might get stuck there desiring to go to Jerusalem and have to continue to do ministry and it would be hard for him to leave. So he sails past Ephesus to meet up with the Ephesian elders. And so these verses 13 through 16, they simply set up our passage for next week. Rod, you are welcome. <laughs> because next, next week is a wonderful and encouraging passage, I think, about the work of God in the life of the church. Now, as we come to a close this morning, we see again and again the same thing that we've been seeing in the book of Acts, the spread of the Great Commission. And because of Paul's obedience, men are being trained and encouraged. There's a teaching of who God is and what God is doing. There's a doctrine that's going out about Christ. Young men are raised to life. Paul goes to many cities and continues to spread the gospel. And in all of this, Paul is putting the spotlight on Jesus Christ. I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God.
And this is what made Paul's life count. This is what made his life purposeful. If we want to say with Alexander Hamilton, I want to build something that's going to outlive me, join Christ in building the church, being a disciple and a disciple maker, being an evangelist, being a sharer of the gospel as you go about in life. This is a wonderful, I believe, privilege that we as pastors have to do is working with people in, in producing Christ-likeness in them by the power of God, seeing transformation in people's lives. But one of the greatest transformations that happens is people moving out of darkness into Christ's marvelous light. This is what will leave a legacy here on earth, and we are just in a long line of godly men and women who have been doing this work from the time of Christ. So we need to ask ourselves, who or what comes first in my life? Who or what comes first in my life? These are just questions for reflection. You don't need to write them down. I just want to ask you, right, what, what are my priorities in my life? And you know what is your priority because your priority is typically where you spend and put in most of your time. Am I trying to build an earthly kingdom that will dissolve or am I sowing into God's heavenly kingdom? And the only time we will ever be able to sow into God's heavenly kingdom and be about the great commission and disciple making is if we are gripped by the glories of Christ. I want us to come back to that in the, in the very beginning. This verse that Paul says, I don't count my life of value, uh, of any value or as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry I received. And the reason why is because he saw how precious Christ was. He saw the many lives being transformed during his ministry. He saw cities being turned upside down because of the power of the gospel and what Christ came to do. And he was gripped by that. I want to open to Philippians and read you some verses part of which we heard earlier. Some of my favorite verses in the New Testament, Paul saying, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him, and here we are, the resurrection, the power of His resurrection, and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Prestigious college degree, rubbish. Coming from a good family, rubbish. A Hebrew of Hebrews, as to law Pharisees. Having some kind of status in society, rubbish compared to the glory of Christ. It shows us a man who had a singular focus. One who was valuing the word and in valuing the word, he was valuing the contents of the word who is Christ. And I'm encouraged by one author who said that if God 
gives us a Red Sea, if God calls us to the Great Commission, if God calls us to disciple-making, if God calls us to make our life count by laying down our life for His purposes, He's going to provide everything that we need. So if He gives us a Red Sea, He'll provide a boat, He'll build a bridge, He'll let you swim, or He's going to part the sea. You see, God always comes alongside of us in that which He calls us to do, and He equips us to do that. This is why Paul says that his grace was sufficient for me, although I'm going through all of this hardship, because his power, his, Christ's power, is made perfect in weakness. And ultimately, we see Christ's supremacy in our passage. Jesus has been given all authority. Authority is this power to act, and may you be encouraged by the verse that comes before the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Christ has power to do what he pleases, the right to exercise the power, to have dominion. And Scripture tells us that someday Jesus will return to earth and exercise his authority, and he's going to rule over the earth. But the question that I want to ask is, how do we see Christ exercising his authority today? We see Christ exercising his authority today through the church. He is building his church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. He has defeated the devil, and he will soon crush him under our feet. His power is seen in that he is calling men out of darkness into light, from the domain of Satan into the domain of God. Men are being rescued and transferred into his kingdom. Men and women who were once in bondage are being set free. Men who were once enslaved to sin are freed to serve God. Christ has this awesome power. And the proof is the transformation of our own lives, how God has saved us and transformed us. If you are a believer this morning, you have experienced the surpassing power of Christ in transforming. And if you have not yet experienced that, there is a call this morning to heed the gospel, to hear that Christ died on your behalf and by faith you may have life in him, that the burden of sins will be taken away because they were nailed to the cross. The long list of sins were nailed to the cross. And by faith in him, you will have life because his righteousness is given over to you. His power is exhorted, exhorted through his people. And so you see, church, gateway, that through Jesus, through us, Jesus is calling the people. It's through our serving, through our loving, through our witnessing, through our preaching, through our disciple-making, that Christ is exercising his power. And so I want to ask you this morning, will you continue to put the spotlight on Jesus? Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your words of life. Father, we thank you for your son. It is because of him we know you. It is because in his face we, be, we, we know because he came on earth and became man and lived this life that we can know you, your attributes, who you are. He's the exact imprint of your nature. And Jesus, we thank you that you have defeated sin and death. Now you're sitting at the right hand victorious. And you call us as your people to live purposefully, to proclaim your excellencies. And so may you encourage us to do that through our daily reading, through fellowship. We may stir one another up to love and good works as we heard this morning as we began our service. We may be driven by the glories of Christ. 
compelled so that other people may know you. For you have changed our life. We lean on you, Lord, to do this work. We know we're frail and weak, but your power is made perfect in weakness, and we are so encouraged by that. We are encouraged also, Lord, this morning that you reminded us that your word is central to our life. We are encouraged this morning as we saw how your providential hand was working in the life of Paul. It is working in ours as well. And so we thank you and we praise you. In Christ's name, amen.